how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Today, we welcome Lou Labentz to the show. Lou is a psychotherapist and trauma clinician and founder of Trauma Thrivers, a program developed specifically to support those who have experienced trauma in moving beyond mere survival into being able to feel fully themselves, speak out, be visible, feel valuable, and thrive. Uh, unfortunately, my audio was acting up, so I just sat quietly and listened and then like typed into the chat that was ignored by everybody. <laughs> And reacted with my face to the entire conversation. But Rose, how did you find the conversation? Oh, it was so beautiful. So nice to have a clinician on who has done so much healing work herself um, and shares about that. And also some really excellent tools and discussions around the nervous system and regulation and um and also breaks down like the recovery process around trauma healing as well, which I think sometimes I think when we're talking about trauma, because it's such a complex subject and there are so many different layers to trauma, it can feel like a never ending fucking thing that's happening. And I think what's really exciting about the way sort of Lou broke it down, it felt quite tangible and you can sort of see that there are all these different steps. And although it might not be solved in kind of a year or whatever, that it definitely, um, there is a journey and an evolution and a healing process that can happen and is evident in not only Lou herself, but in the work that she advocates for. That is so awesome. And it's interesting too, because uh, even recently, um, my sponsor sent me uh, information on trauma and the 12 steps, daily meditations, and reflexes, <laughs> daily meditations and Reflections, which is a book by Jamie Marich and Stephen uh, Dan Sigger. And just like this idea that we don't, talk, I mean, especially because, the, you know, the big book of the Alcohol Fellowship was written in like the 1930s and they didn't necessarily have access to all this information that like maybe these are really powerful tools that can help people struggling with sobriety, you know, because these things are so linked. Totally. And we talked a lot about like what happens when you put the substances down, then the work really starts, you know, and then, but we never know where that journey is going to go. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it's it was beautiful to kind of watch you guys <laughs> as a bystander live kind of discuss your own experiences with that and like what it kind of felt like to create safe relationships and become safe in oneself, which I think is like such a reward of sobriety. And and well, yeah. like how 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 do we even start to have safe, like intimate relationships if we can't be safe within ourselves? Like it's so cool that uh, Lou has worked specifically on this and has like an affordable program for that so oh yeah I'm definitely gonna take that program I tell you that for nothing like I feel like I mean I'm just a nerd for programs and stuff but I love <laughs> that the focus is on around becoming uh, a well parent for yourself you know 
because I think that's all the work, you know, that safety and security is what we all, well, what I was certainly searching for in drugs and alcohol, although I would never have said that at the time. Um, but looking back, like all I was searching for was this kind of deep, satisfying, healed connection with self. Totally, totally. And I mean, it's so cool that there's so many ways to get there, you know, and she named like a bunch of them. And what you said, it was EMDR and T-R-E. Yeah. Like, and rolfing and Reiki and like soul journeying. It's just like, there's so many different ways to kind of reconnect to those pieces. And and every way might not work for every person, but it's cool to know that like, if one modality didn't necessarily function for us, then there are other ways to do it. And it's exciting to have one's mind open to the idea that like, we can get well in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's, I think it's, um, it's hopeful is what it is. Here's to hope. Yay. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So thrilled you could join us today. Um, I've been a huge, huge fan oh. of you and your work and uh, oh, the Traumatized Thrivers group and just what you do. And uh, you have such a fabulous reputation. And I don't oh. think we've ever actually met in person, right? No, I don't think we have either. And I'm trying to think why we haven't. But... I feel quite touched and a bit tearful about that. So thank you for all those oh. lovely words. Oh, my God. I don't I mean, know who um, you've been speaking to. Oh. <laughs> I must give them a fiver when I next see them. Definitely thank do. <laughs> Very lovely. Oh, no, I mean it. Um, you just radiate kind of authenticity through through the um, informed kind of trauma practices which you talk about. And one thing that I find really helpful is the transparency you bring around the work that you do. Uh, How have you been? How has the pandemic been treating you? And um, I've been relatively, I know it sounds weird, but I feel very lucky and fortunate that the work that I do can be done from home. So I, I guess I'm in one of those very, yeah, grateful positions that pretty much nothing has really changed in my life. Right. Um, and I really feel for those out there listening who, who have lost their jobs or lost whatever they've lost, because therapy, thank God, I'm not a touch therapist. You know, what we do is we speak. So, you know, and even my uh, EMDR stuff I can do online. So, wow. Yeah, so to to be honest, it's been better for me because I haven't had to travel into London and into rooms and into cities. So I've just got to be at home with the dog much more, really. Yeah, so how would you uh, support a client in kind of breaking down that internal uh, reactive state? Oh, that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Sorry. Um, So the internal reactive state is... We all react in different ways, dependent on the trauma and what's happened to us. I would say that the normal survival responses are what we look at, which is whether somebody goes into fight or flight or freeze, or the other two less known ones are flop or friend. Oh, what's that? So flop is when we just submit, we kind of give up. That's it. Hopeless, helpless, powerless. And friend is our attachment. So when we attach to somebody, so something like Stockholm syndrome, 
which is when, yeah, I don't know whether you've heard of Stockholm syndrome. It's, it's basically when the, the, there was a bank robbery, I believe, in Stockholm and lots of the people that were held hostage then befriended the hostage takers and some of them married them. So it's that kind oh, yeah. of trauma bonding that comes between a relationship when on the one hand you're loving and kind and then the next moment you're horrendous to somebody that's a a trauma bond is created and that's that attachment kind of needy or dare I say even that codependent part of us oh if I please appease that person they'll leave me alone if I don't say anything if I don't have a voice so I would look at somebody um, and the different parts of them that are traumatized because normally when we have trauma we have different parts of us reacting in different ways given the circumstances so the first thing about trauma is to try and stabilize somebody in getting them to feel safe Mm. and that's safe within themselves which is a hard call to start with totally. but also <laughs> safe in some relationships because trauma happens in relationships but healing happens in relationships which is what psychotherapy is or coaching i guess yeah i mean it's so interesting to hear you kind of break that down and that idea of I know just from my own sort of therapeutic experience in therapy and less so as a coach because the kind of coaching I do is much more sort of accountability based and things like that I try to actually stay out of the trauma so that um I'd, I prefer to work with a therapist who's kind of trauma informed and can do that although I am trauma informed as it were but in terms of that work I think that that is um profoundly deep feeling safe within oneself I think really needs to happen with a therapist yeah because it's such a um the idea of security and especially around the attachment addiction side that we need to that sense of security is usually broken down such at an early age that building that back up is is not like just in a couple of sessions or a few coaching like let's make you feel better about this project or whatever it really is some yeah huge unpickings I don't have all the um professional vocabulary for it but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how somebody can feel more secure within themselves well I think it's about um realizing that we kind of need a scaffold per se we need um we need to attach two things. We need to reattach, if you like, to safe others. But we also need to realize that within us somewhere, there is a resourceful adult. Like right. we're not all our trauma, you know. So right. I try and get people to see that there is a present moment self who is actually probably pretty resilient and robust and resourceful. So if we can start connecting to that adult self and start to see the trauma as something more historical, something more separate. I mean, I don't like separating parts, but you kind of got to separate the parts before you integrate them or even know that there's a part of me that goes into fight or a part of me that goes into freeze. But actually those parts are not really me. They're not right. the I. Right. That's so interesting. So it's almost like you have to get the jigsaw puzzle out, lay all the pieces out 
before you can start putting it back together. Yeah. And in a way, I, I believe in that. And I also use, um, I mean, I, I, there's various kind of different models in trauma, but what I find is quite helpful for people to start with is something called TA, which stands for transactional analysis. So it's a kind of therapeutic theory, but it's quite simple. And I, I quite like that keep it simple philosophy because I mean, it's, it's complex enough as it is, isn't it really? And in TA, it says, We've got the ad, we've got five circles basically. And the circle in the middle is the adult. And then above the adult, we've got two parental figures. And then below the adult, we've got two child figures. And in the parents, we've got a critical parent or a nurturing parent. And in the children, we've got a not okay child or an okay child. So trauma is held in the critical parent and the not okay child. Hmm. All our other ego states, like our adult, which is our present moment self, or our nurturing parent or our okay child, mm-hmm. are trauma free. Right. So it's trying to stabilize somebody first in their adult to eventually bring in a nice, compassionate, wise. Now, I'm laughing because honestly, it's taken me years to get a blooming nurturing parent in. So I can hear how ludicrous it sounds to some people. <laughs> right. Like, what? You're nurturing parent? <laughs> you must be joking. But, you know, that's the end of the journey almost, once we can mm-hmm. be really compassionate towards ourselves. And then there's that fun, okay child that's like joyous and fun loving and you know it just expressive and expansive and then the trauma piece is over in the critical parent and the not okay child and so Mm. our job as therapists is to try and dissolve those and strength strengthen the others amazing thank you for breaking that down that's a really 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 clear how I'm really curious about your background and how um trauma thrivers came to be and your kind of journey and evolution to this work oh gosh um I I I think I've been a therapist now for about 20 years so private practice for about the last 10 but about five years ago I kind of really got uh, an urge to speak Mm. Which was really difficult, Rose, because I was terrified of public speaking. Wow. I had the worst glossophobia you've ever, ever heard of. So, um, but I, I wanted, I think, to speak because I think when you're trying to inform others about trauma or addiction or mental health, one of the really important parts of it is finding your own voice. Hmm. And being as a, a therapist, do you yeah. Mean? Well, not just as a therapist, but as a trauma survivor. You know, I mean, I don't know how many therapists or coaches out there don't have their own journey of trauma. Right. I'd be really interested to do the research on that. But yeah. I, I think most people I know come into this business, yes, because they want to help people, and primarily, I hope that's our intention. But also, I think a lot of us come into it because we want to heal and help heal ourselves and we're fascinated. 
And, you know, I just pity the poor people that uh, (laughs) worked with me when I was 34, 35 and newly at the Priory Addiction Centre at Roehampton, having just done my addictions training. And yeah, because, you know, 10 years earlier, I was locked up in a mental asylum with psychosis. So, yeah. Extraordinary journey. How did you get from the mental asylum psychosis clinic, yeah, to to the priory on the other side of that? I was really, really lucky. So when I was twenty-five, I was spiked. Not for the first time. It's been a recurrent theme of mine. Um, you know, earlier with Rohypnol and this time with LSD. So I was already a really good, you know, on the, on the booze and drinker. Um, but I probably didn't go down the drugs route because it, it got me sectioned with psychosis. And I spent a while in a kind of asylum in, in Epsom in Surrey. So unable to walk or talk or do anything. But that was, that was 25 bit of a long time ago now but that was my breakthrough and then I just got really interested in the mind because um, I I wanted to learn about it and read about it and then I think it took me to about 32 to start training and then a bit longer to realize that I was an addict and I needed to get into recovery too so yeah. And what's that recovery journey look like for you? Do you you have a way of kind of keeping track of that do you go to support groups how do you take care of yourself I I did in the early days and you know I recommend the fellowship to a lot of my clients and and I would say that my my journey is more relational trauma so more coda and kind of avoidance if you like in relationships Mm. but yeah I I don't think I've had a drink for guys 16 or 17 years and I was a terrible smoker. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely, I would say in recovery, my biggest problem was codependency. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of the codependent checklist, but if you come out as chronic, (laughs) I think I was chronically codependent. Yeah. 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 I have. And I find that really interesting for me. It was about kind of getting rid of the, um, the drugs and the alcohol and then realizing that I am firmly embedded in the family program, which is where I have to do the unpicking and the work. And, you know, I do, I do get my, um, ointment from going to the, the, the substance programs, but, but the other, the family ones and the coda. Yeah. I need that like every day because it's how we relate, right. And how we connect outside of ourselves and building that safe, parental figure that you talked about is all sort of embedded in that and unpicking that and it's like and not and you think you kind of think well everybody just has this right but they don't it turns out they don't when you when you're confronted I was really profoundly lucky to meet somebody who doesn't have a lot of that coda stuff going on wow it's and be in relationship and marriage with that person. Now I'm pregnant, 21 weeks. Oh, um, I'm your child with that person. Thank you so much. It's so extraordinary because I feel like, you know, I had always chosen partners who we could really get into that kind of trauma bond together. And that felt safe in itself, actually. Yeah. 
yeah really safe yeah and they were therapists and they were you know doctors and things like that and you're like well I've picked a safe one because he has a job title that seems respectable but you're like no absolutely (laughs) not necessarily and so this relationship which I've been in now for coming up to nine years has been profoundly unearthing and and also the friendships that I've developed within the fellowship and you realize when they're safe and secure and kind of how Louisa and I built this podcast is you know um we were having a lot of conversations with women around intimacy in the fellowship where they were like where do we go for this you know what do we do if we can't go into therapy why aren't we talking about this in the support groups and so we wanted to kind of create a platform for that conversation and and Lou and I have developed, you know, and I think females with females as well. There's a lot of trauma there that we do, I'm again, banding that trauma word around, but certainly mine was with an, other females yeah. much more than other men. And it's something I think society fails to kind of hone in on is, and I've noticed also being pregnant here, it's kind of extraordinary. I'm going down lots of different rabbit holes, I realize, but, but with the pregnancy, you know, how women react to you versus how men treat you in that vulnerable space and you think no wonder I kind of bonded much more with the opposite sex in that way because it felt much safer than developing intimacy with other women yes of of a friendship basis and um yeah so a lot of work gets done when you when you put the the substances down. <laughs> a lot of work, and I agree. And I and I I think it's almost like the substances get put down first, and then the kind of food stuff gets looked mm. at, and then the relational, and the, then the kind of money stuff as well. Right, right. We had somebody on the podcast a couple of weeks ago who was a financial specialist. And we were kind of talking about this relationship between intimacy and money, which is so yes. directly linked. Totally, totally. Yeah. And our reaction to it is a trauma reaction, you know. Right. And we can have so much trauma around that as well. And I, you know, I really hear you on the intimacy and the safety with women. Mm. And our, you know, my a lot of my trauma, early trauma was with women mm. as well. And you know, even in the fellowship and friends in the fellowship and stuff, you know, the amount of people that you think because they've got a therapist or a coach or or whatever job title means that they can do intimacy and safety and rupture and repair. Right. But, you know, some people can just do rupture. Right. And and they still can't repair it. And, you know, I've had that so many times in this, in, in our profession as well. So, and we have to be around people that can repair because that's what intimacy is. Oh my God. I'm just getting like full on chills because it's so beautiful to hear you talk about this. Um, in this repair state, what does that look like for you? How would you, if you've gone into rupture? It's a felt sense for me. It's a feeling. Like it's a, it's a feeling of with this person, I can have a voice. Mm. With this person, I can share really my authentic self and my feelings. And they're not going to shut me down or abandon me or reject me. They're just going to hear me. And somebody Mm. I think has to be quite connected and quite secure and embodied to really fully hear that in another Mm. human being. Mm, Absolutely. It's the 
that's like the rest of our lives, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. getting on that, getting on yeah. that. That is, I mean, I always kind of look for those friendships now where you feel like there is safety to, to speak one's own truth. Yes. And no matter how inconvenient that might be around, um, I don't know, is it okay if I keep my shoes on or whatever, you know, just like little, because it starts with the small stuff, doesn't it? it like does. we practice it in those kind of sandboxes in a way yeah. of, um, advocating for oneself in, in very small ways or whatever that yeah. looks like. And then, then we get to do it in the deeper, bigger stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, somebody said to me once that intimacy, and you've probably heard this a million times, especially with the subject matter of your podcast, but is into me, you see. Yeah. You know, how many, how many times it's a bit, it's the I old chestnut. It. No, but, but I love it. You know, it's a mirror. It is a mirror. And I think that the more work we've done on ourselves, the more that we can look into our own parts and our own history and our own trauma, mm. the more able we are to sit and truly look into somebody else and be a safe space for them. 100%. And I love the, you know, um, create, I don't know about you, but like one of the things that I found why I wanted to go into this work was to bring safety to others, to make other people feel that they were just simply heard and that there was a space of uh, nurture and comfort and which essentially was all I desired growing up you know and was searching for and have searched for in all my relationships yeah. and substances too and that feeling of absolute embodied heldness and I think once I connected in to that with myself and unfortunately being having been an actor for 20 years like the whole work of being on stage and being on board in body isn't really you can't really dissociate on stage <laughs> successfully yeah. sometimes you come off stage and think fuck that was crazy I don't remember a thing but actually present on stage was was where I was but however afterwards and creating that for other people has really been my goal as the work that I go into and and to remember that and hear you speak about that really touches me well if we could create a, a world of people that could do that we'd have no more trauma, would we? No. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so if you, this podcast is called Sober Sex, as you know. Um, are you comfortable, and if you are or not, would you mind telling us about your first messages you received around sex and sexuality? Gosh. Um, I'm totally comfortable talking about it, but I think it for me... I, I don't know whether um, you know in my history that I was actually sexually abused at four. So, I didn't like, know Yeah. So I suppose when I think about sex and my early messages, they were all started at four, five and six being abused by a woman, not a man. Yeah. So she was the female babysitter and I think she was probably about 16 or 17 and I think she was probably experimenting with her own sexuality and kind of had a, a toy to play with. And mm. so I think my very early experiences were all a bit negative, to be honest with you, mm. you know, and um, not very, yeah, not, yeah, I suppose I associated it with shame. Um, and um, I know that I... 
I then probably shut down sexually till I, I remember losing my virginity actually quite late for, 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 I don't know whether it's late these days, but I was 19 and it was a, it was a one night stand with an Italian. There's a clue there to my later sexual history, but there, <laughs> we're not going to that now. And yeah, I never wanted to see him again. And then I think my mm. next sexual experience was unfortunately being raped on Rohypnol. So I didn't have a brilliant start with sex. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least, I love how low-key you're keeping that. (laughs) sexual messages were, yeah, not that healthy. But then luckily throughout my 20s and 30s, I've met some really wonderful men and had some wonderful experiences, but never, never any that were quite the same as when I got sober. Right. And how did your um, part towards healing? Yeah, it is completely different, isn't it? Having sex sober than having sex when you're drinking or drunk. Oh, my God. Um, I think it was terrifying the first time from memory. I mean, I'm going back a while. I think I was terrified. And it actually had to be with somebody. I could no longer do one night stands. No. And whether that was recovery and sex or doing sex sober or whether it was because I'd started to do all the trauma and the healing work, I just knew that casual sex for me didn't work. And I had to be with somebody that, I really connected with and had a relationship with and then it was special. And so what did that healing look like for you? What allowed you to kind of go back? Because that sounds like such a precarious and um, terrifying start to life, really. And thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, it sounds like you've really done your healing, your work. Yeah, for somebody listening to, to, to know that whatever the sexual trauma you can still come out of it and enjoy sex and not feel shameful about it and feel that it's a loving, uh, intimate, important part of a kind relationship. Absolutely. So I think it was, I I think it was a slow and gradual process, if I'm honest, between my thirties and forties and being again, like we said earlier, in relationships that heal relationships Mm. that you can do repairing, relationships that you feel seen and heard in, you know, and safety for me is everything about it really, because how can you do intimacy with somebody when you feel unsafe? Absolutely. And we talked about this, uh, we did a panel recently around consent and, um, you know, we have to start taking the idea that kind of sex is art can be is needs to be daring and unsafe but like safety can be can just open up everything yes. you know you can it gives you the platform the opportunity to explore all of those facets of yourself if you have that sense of security and that kind of strong foundation and, um, and actually if we're coming from a from an unsafety or a or a, a a thrilling i'm i'm kind of interested in the trauma repetition of that Hmm. You know, I, I, I'm interested in, there's a difference between, I suppose, thrilling and then, you know, uh, having to be thrilled in our sexual relationships or, or it being, you know, having to be off, 
the scale a little bit, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know quite how to put this, but I guess it's because I work a lot with sexual trauma victims that then sex is something that has to be or parts of their trauma then get reenacted through that sexual right. relationship. You know, But it's confusing, isn't it? Because if you had such an early start and got introduced, I know from my own experience, I'm also a survivor, survivor. of that. And, yeah. and so what that looks like is that, I mean, and, you know, coming to terms with the fact that that did turn me on as a child. Yes. Like, and that was, was okay. I, yes. I had genitals that worked. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> they were just being activated a little too young. Absolutely. And that does inform my, what turns me on now. Yes. And I can't, it's not that, it's not that I maybe would wish it would be different, but I almost can't help that. Yes. It's not that I'm reenacting with children. Yes. I mean that, that, that the, what now informs my sexuality is part of be also because it was with a female is bisexuality yes. and also um involving that in my in my marriage now as well yes. and so coming to terms with oneself and allowing the shame to drop away yes. from that experience and saying you know what it's all right if that shows up today in yeah. my marriage it doesn't mean I'm a dirty wrong um, person and I should just kind of go then because what can happen is people go into like sexual anorexia right yes. into the other side of that it's just easier not to see that side of myself than yeah. to actually say you know what I I like girls too yes. you know how do I bring that in yeah. and, and am I in a safe enough relationship where I can embody all of those facets yes. of myself yeah 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 I hear you I hear you thank you thank you and thank you for talking about what that looked like for you so what does growth and thriving look like for you today? Um, I think it looks like freedom and freedom to, I don't know, have a voice, be visible, feel worthy and valuable, show up, uh, go towards the mission or the vision that you have for your life and fully just be able to do it. Oh, I, I think love that's that. thriving for me, where we don't feel like we've got any blocks anymore. We're just able to flourish. And you talked about this kind of need to want to speak out and talk about this yeah. rather than just be a clinician, I guess. How how did that how how are you kind of incorporating freedom within that? It, interesting. Um when I when I spoke out a few years ago. It, uh, it was more in that kind of guise of a, a, as a therapist. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a difficulty, if I'm honest, between, you know, therapists, coaches, what we call ourselves, speakers, online trainers, podcast hosts. And, you know, I'm not a psychoanalyst, as I'm sure you've probably guessed. <laughs> Um, by my being on this podcast, because, you know, there are forms of therapists that we are the blank screen or we're meant right. to be. And our stuff isn't meant to be out there in the world because, mm. you know, that's the kind of therapeutic belief. Um, but there are many more therapists that are visible, that are on Instagram, that share of themselves. And I think in my experience, having done a TEDx on you know, some some of my story, it's never seemed to harm anybody by mm. knowing more about me. 
it's made most of my clients realize that they don't have to put me on such a high pedestal, perhaps. Um, and, And I think what I'm doing after two decades of being a therapist is I'm moving more into the online training space. So my dream now is to, or mission or purpose, is to create uh, an affordable online trauma treatment voyage for people. Wow, Lou. That's that, amazing. That's what I'd love to do because I just know there's so many people out there struggling that can't afford treatment or therapy. And oh. we've got nothing. There's really nothing out there for them. No, absolutely. So um, I don't, that's the kind of, I'm hoping it, I mean, it might take me another decade to do it, but yeah, that's, that's really the path for me now. And training rather than one-to-one, doing one-to-groups or one-to-many, mm-hmm. um, that's what I'd like to build next, really. So I, I'm starting, I haven't been able to take on any new clients for a year or, or more. So um, I, I, I think that the path for me now will be developing trauma thrivers and more online programs and the podcast and hopefully helping more than one person at a time. That's what I'd like to think I'm stepping into. Oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to see where this oh, goes. Well, I'm glad I haven't got a fear so much of public speaking anymore. Otherwise, that would be difficult. So, yeah, thank God. So, I, How did you push through that? Because oh, that's right. I had to do so much training. Did you? So much training. I even went on a course where we had to stand on Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park on a Oh, my God. <laughs> and go there was on nowhere more intimidating yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Because literally my knees would shake. It was just dreadful. And I oh. think it was the trauma. You know, yeah. I think it was the trauma. And I think it was still some of the childhood trauma where, you know, we don't have a voice around these things, you know. Yeah. We can't speak up about what's happened to us. So I feel like the, the, the first passionate thing that I'm, I'm really up for in trauma um, resolution is getting people to find their voice, you know, because once you can speak up, wow. Oh, yeah. It you just know. breaks down so many um, barriers. And I know for myself that that's why I found theatre such a healing tool. It was almost like yes. I was in my own kind of form of therapy from a young age as a child because I had a place to kind of live out that stuff yeah, and have a voice and embody everything that was going on around me, the chaos I was ensued in. And, and it, I don't know if you, um, you know about TRE and yes, those I do. Kind of, yes, yeah. And I love that those physical practices yes. for people who don't know, uh, TRE is, um, a, well, would, could you kind of break yeah, it down? Yeah, a bit? TRE is a trauma release exercise. So it's basically where you get the body and the breath to certain positions and you allow the physical body to shake. So it's almost like it's connecting into the central nervous system to try and release some of the fight, flight, freeze energy that's trapped because because all of us trauma people believe that trauma is trapped within the nervous system and that part mm. of our healing is to discharge it. So TRE is another method, if you like, to discharging that trauma. It's bloody brilliant. If people haven't tried it, I did a couple of courses and and they call it the shakes and you do this whole fishtail shaky thing. And I'd had, the, I'd been living with some chronic pain for about a year and it was the one, it was the thing that just kind of broke it for me really Amazing. and just released it. And I was like, 
oh my God, the world should know about this. It was amazing. And I couldn't figure it out in therapy what the pain was around. And I'd been to rheumatologists and all of these things, but just doing these really simple exercises on the regular. And I wonder if that's why a lot of people kind of come into recovery from drugs and alcohol and then get really into sport in a way, because actually what they're trying to do is release that physical trauma and and the helpfulness of being embodied and exercising and getting the breath regulated with the nervous system is so important, I think. Well, I think it's the number one most important thing of the work that we do. And and I'm oh, I don't know whether I can say this, but I would say most of the people that I've worked with with addiction, if not all, have underlying trauma that needs to be treated. So we put right. down the addiction or the eating disorder or the coping strategy, and mm-hmm. then we get to the dysregulation in the nervous system underneath. And what I like with EMDR is a kind of mix of TRE and therapy in that very often in the bilateral stimulation of EMDR, which is the left and right hemisphere or the tapping or the eye movements or the butterfly hugging, what you will do when you're releasing trauma with somebody is that they will run or they will shake or their arms will go or their legs Mm. will go because we're letting go of the cortisol and the adrenaline that's in the body. So sometimes I've actually stood on a chair with my arms still waving (laughs) as somebody's been running or sprinting. Wow. Yeah, just to let that bodily charge out of the body. So that's what good EMDR does too. It releases that. Bloody hell, that sounds amazing. And as you're releasing it from the body, what happens to the cognition or the belief is it starts to become more adaptive. It starts to change. Right. And that's what you're wanting because once the somatic charge is released, the belief kind of collapses within the system. Fascinating. That's so fascinating and so important that – I guess if you're doing MDR, there is that that happens afterwards rather than just sort of being left like, well, you did the thing and you need to have a release it somehow. You right? do release it. And normally people release it in session. So oh, really? Yeah. Whilst okay. you're doing the EMDR, you get the release with the with me being there watching. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That was not my experience, but wasn't it? <laughs> no, wow. but you know. Sometimes with EMDR, um, it takes weeks, if not months. Sometimes it takes real safety and trust with a therapist. Mm. Sometimes it takes ages for us to feel fully embodied and Mm. associated enough in that memory. Mm. You know, so if it doesn't work immediately, we might just be a little bit disconnected from the memory still and not right in the somatic of it. So totally. Don't give up, um, and if it's the wrong therapist, keep keep looking. Yeah, for sure. And what would you say to those of us who've experienced trauma? What are some of the first steps we could take towards dealing with our healing? I, I'm going to make a slight plug at the moment. So, but it is free on my website. So, if you go to traumathrivers.com forward slash ebook, you can find a free version of 56 methods of healing trauma. Oh, wow. I've not seen it yet. No. You can also buy it on Amazon, but it's, 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 it's big and it's lots of 
color in it. So it is eighteen ninety nine on a on a hardback. But if you go Lush. to the website, it's free. And really, it's got all different sorts of therapy in there. But it's even got things like um, Reiki or shamanic healing or orthomolecular healing. So just have a flick through that and see what grabs you. Because I, I, I think there are so many roads to Rome. Mm. You know, and I'm not a believer in our trauma healing journey, A, that it's linear, or B, that we're in it for a year and then it's over. I'm sorry. Like, take it off the yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. I think it's an ongoing, evolving and layer by layer. And I, I think, you know, certain methods hit different cells within the body or the structure and feel differently. So, you know, my rolfing experiences are very different to my Reiki experiences that are very different to my shamanic healing experiences to my EMDR. So I think everybody needs to try what works for them and maybe something might work this year that in two years time won't. Yeah. Absolutely, because we're changing and evolving yeah, right, all, all the, time. the time. Yeah, I'm just going to say, Lou, it was, it's been such a joy to have you here today. Um, I've learned so much. I'm so grateful to got to meet you and oh, connect with you here. You too. I would love to now just bounce into the lightning round, which requires just sort of one word answers very, very quickly, just impulsively say whatever you want. So, what is the last great book you read or series you watched? I'm back on Game of Thrones for the second time. Ooh. I'm even trying to get my mum into it, but she's she can't work out who the Starks and the Lannisters are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fast forward, I hate to say, but I could say it on this podcast because it's quite funny. We have to fast forward some of the brothel scenes because she's nearly 80 and she goes, oh, bless. oh my dear. Bit much. Yeah. Bit much. So sorry, that wasn't really one word, was it? (laughs) Not at all. That's brilliant. What helps you get in your body today? Walking the dog and being with Alfie. Yeah. About in nature, really. It's always nature for me. I'm a bit of a tree hugger. Same. Same. We both are. Both Louisa and I both are. What is your favorite snack? Nuts. I'm a bit of a nut freak. Macadamias. Which ones? Macadamias. Yeah, I like cashews. And when I'm feeling very naughty, salted peanuts. Oh. Yeah, I'm really, I love nuts. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Love it. What is your favorite karaoke jam or song to sing in the shower? mm, It's a little bit funny. This feeling, I'm terrible. Your song always used to do it, karaoke. Or summertime. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like summertime and the yeah. living is easy, fish and oh, jumping. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one a good eight. one, isn't it? Yeah. Bloody brilliant. And what do you love? I love what I do. I love what I do. Oh. I'm so glad that I found this path and I'm so glad that I get to, that this is called work, meeting people like you. Oh, Lou, truly, what a gift to have you here today. My heart is exploding. I can't wait to meet you in person. Where can people find you on the internet? If they go to the Facebook Trauma Thrivers, that's probably the best bet for me. 
fab yeah and your website and your instagram is uh banging it's i love your instagram i learned so much and um regularly share it with people so um what are you on instagram lula bents trauma thrivers trauma thrivers yeah wicked thank you so much thank you both i've been so lovely to be here thank you 